So in our society, land management basically means the management of land, plants, animals, water. I really like to think of what we do as stewardship, because I feel like when we say management, that means that we're like controlling something. And I don't view what we do as controlling the land. I I view it more as like tending to the land. So I like saying what we do is, you know, stewardship. And I feel like us as indigenous people, too, we have a responsibility to make sure that, you know, our plant and animal relatives are taken care of and they know that we're thinking about them. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Native Minnesota, a podcast about the Native American experience in Minnesota and beyond. I'm your host, Rebecca Crook Stratton, Secretary Treasurer of the Shakopee Midwakton Sioux Community, or the SMSC. The podcast is a project of Understand Native Minnesota, a campaign focused on improving the narrative about Native Americans in Minnesota's K-12 schools. Today, we have Farron Davis Anderson joining me. She is the Supervisor of Environmental Sciences here at the SMSC and the author of a new forthcoming book, Wildfire. We talk about what land management means and how she combines both traditional Indigenous knowledge and Western science. We also discuss her new book and the important role fire plays in environmental stewardship. I hope you enjoy. I'm here today with Farron Davis. Uh, she is the Supervisor of Environmental Science here at SMSC uh, and also an author um, of a new book about fire, of all things. Mm-hmm. Um, Farron, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. When I was asked to be on here, I was like, what? This is an honor. <laughs> it really is. Well, thank you. It's an honor to to be here and, and learn a little bit about you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role here at SMSC? Yes. Yeah, so I work for the Land and Natural Resources Department, like Rebecca said, as the supervisor of environmental sciences. I'm also an enrolled citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, Ojibwe, Michifs in North Dakota. I grew up there. Um, so our team at the SMSC and the land department is responsible for stewarding and restoring natural spaces throughout the community. So that includes prairies, forests, oak savannas, wetlands. Um, and we also monitor plant and animal relatives or, or um, you know, nations that we have here. And we do that so that we understand like the work that we're doing is benefiting them and they're thriving. And we also try to provide access um, and community involvement with our projects. So one of the things that we initiated the past couple of years was Ina Maka Yahoniapi, and that means honoring Mother Earth in Dakota. And so that program helps us to engage with the youth in the community, which is really nice because then we have um, participation in our projects and our restoration work from the community youth. And then we have the opportunity to learn from them. And they also have the opportunity to learn from us maybe about some plants that they didn't know of or some animals that they didn't know of. And I think that's really important to have community youth in your, um, in your projects and in your, in your work, because it makes it like much more meaningful. I feel like. Well, thank you for being here and, and supporting SMSC and all these amazing projects. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you become an environmental scientist? (laughs) My road was, (laughs) my road was windy (laughs) to becoming a scientist. Um, I feel like in high school, I really thought that I would go into the medical field. And that was something that was stressed to us as, 
as high schoolers, like a yeah, medical field, you have lots of opportunities. So like to become an environmental scientist wasn't something that I thought or saw myself going into, but, um, I had an opportunity when I was going to the Turtle Mountain Community College to be part of a research project that looked at the bloom dates of yellow lady slippers and wild rose, which are important plants in our community. And that really opened my eyes to opportunities that, you know, I could make a career in the outdoors and caring for plants. And so then I kind of transitioned my degree and I went to North Dakota State University and I got a natural resource management bachelor of science degree there. And then I kind of had a, a lot of different jobs and I finally landed at SMSC and I started out as a technician and the community has been um, great to work with. I love working for the community and they provided a lot of opportunities for me to, you know, expand my knowledge base and, and grow within the position. So now I'm a supervisor here. Fantastic. If, you know, some of our listeners are interested in in getting into the environmental sciences. Do you mm-hmm. have any advice for them on how to get their toe in the door? Yeah, I feel like so for me, one of the ways that I was able to get my foot into this space was through an AmeriCorps program called the Conservation um, or the Conservation Corps of Minnesota. And that's um, just kind of a program that's meant for people who are interested in something like this and they can go and work in the outdoors and and meet a lot of different people in a lot of different spaces. And then they learn from like, okay, I, I really understood, like, I want to do restoration work from that work because it's one instantaneous. So you get a lot of gratification right away, but um, it's just something that, you know, makes you feel good because, you know, you're contributing to, you know, helping these plants and animals come back. And so that's one way you can get into it. But also um, there's a lot of different degrees like natural resource management, ecology, biology. Um, But I would really stress it's a hard it's a hard career to get into initially, especially with just a bachelor's degree. But if you um, have a lot of experience and a lot of different internships, that opens the door a lot. And plant identification is really important. You need to be able to recognize like what's out on the landscape. So I feel like that's a skill that often is overlooked, but it's really important. Fantastic. <laughs> um, you, as a environmental scientist, um, are essentially managing the land. Can you talk a little bit about what land management is and kind of how you go about doing that? Yeah, so, um, so in our society, land management basically means the management of land, plants, animals, water. I really like to think of what we do as stewardship because I feel like when we say management, that means that we're like controlling something. And I don't view what we do as controlling the land. I I view it more as like tending to the land. So I like saying what we do is, you know, stewardship. And I feel like us as indigenous people too, we have a responsibility to make sure that, you know, our plant and animal relatives are taken care of and they know that we're thinking about them. And so for me, that's, that's what land stewardship or land management means, natural resource management. Um, and some of the ways that we do that is making sure that, you know, that people have access to those spaces because that's so important because here where we're at, there's a lot of development. There's a lot of urban development and the Twin Cities is just continuing to grow. And so the community has been so great about dedicating resources to that to make sure that 
um, the community members have access to these spaces. And I think that's really important. What are some of your favorite projects that you've got to implement here in your position? Well, recently helping with the, you know, the successful reintroduction of the bison, bringing them home here. And I, I was just so grateful to be a part of that project. And there was a lot of support from you and the business council and also throughout the community. And, you know, now we have the ability to reconnect with part of that part of our culture that was kind of taken from us. Right. And not only that, but we're bringing the we're bringing them back for the prairie because that was part of prairie stewardship that we were missing that component because bison are just interconnected with the prairies. And so they need, they need the bison to, to thrive. And so it's really comforting to see them back there on the landscape. Very exciting. Yeah, that is an amazing project. Um, one that actually started with chairman Charlie Vig, and mm-hmm. it's been amazing to see it come to fruition. I know when the bison got here, I was surprised at how emotional I was to mm-hmm. see that return, but it was really fantastic. So thanks for your work on that. Um, so is there something specific that drew you to this work? I think that um, I've always kind of liked being outdoors <laughs> when I grew up again on the Turtle Mountain Reservation. I had access to the prairie, so I was able to see a lot of different wildflowers and appreciate them. I remember seeing the wood lily in the prairie and being like, man, that's really cool. I love this little plant. <laughs> and um, I remember going with my dad to harvest like morels and different berries like choke cherries and June berries and um, hazelnuts, nuts that we call pecans back home. And so I think that kind of just fostered something in me where I just appreciated being outdoors and I just like it feels good to be connected to a place and so I have a connection here because of the work that I do and I also have a connection back home so when I get to go back home too it's really meaningful to me and um, I think it was just you know it's not something that is when I try to explain to people or even my family, like what I do, it's like often like, well, what do you do? <laughs> like people think I'm a wildland firefighter and it's like, well, I do that sometimes, but a lot of times I'm doing a, a lot of other cool stuff too. Well, speaking of being a wildland firefighter, um, you do wear many hats mm-hmm. and that's a pretty interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about what a wildland firefighter does? Yeah, so a wildland firefighter is somebody who um, typically would be employed to put out a fire. (laughs) But for me and our team, it's kind of the opposite. (laughs) We like to start fires (laughs) and we do it intentionally because um, we want to bring fire back to the landscape because fire is an important ecological disturbance. So a lot of different plant communities evolved with fire and they need fire to thrive. So the prairies here in the oak savannas. Those are good examples of if the fire is taken out of that system, like it can be quickly uh, or it can quickly transition into something um, like a forest. And, you know, those plants in the prairies and the oak savannah, they're so important, too. And we need to take care of them. And without um, without this management, that's that's a tough transition to a forest. So when we talk about, you know, using that fire and and you say, you know, certain uh, habitats or ecosystems need fire to survive Mm -hmm. um how did they how did they burn i guess before 
you know, there were people like you to to start the fires. Yeah. So historically, our ancestors were really involved with fire. They had a relationship with fire. And so that was something that happened on the landscape, pre-contact, all, a lot. We used fire for a lot of different reasons, a variety um, of reasons. So things like plant production, like if we knew that fire was beneficial for a certain type of plant or a plant community, we would burn it. And we knew like what intervals to burn it at. And also to make travel easier too, because, you know, you see it in forests now where a lot of the brush will come up and it's really difficult for even wildlife to walk through. And so fire kind of kept those shrubs at bay and it was easier to walk through forests or even walk through grasslands and then bringing in game species for us for hunting purposes too. So we knew that um, burning a certain area would attract these game species like bison or elk or deer. And so that was something that we used to bring them in. And it was just a lot of different sophisticated ways that I don't think people like they thought that we were just using it haphazardly, but we understood like what we were doing and we used it um, in a variety of ways. So that was one way. And then another way is through lightning. But there's been a lot of studies that have shown like even lightning, they wouldn't have burned as often with just that natural ignition source. So people on the landscape were the real stewards of that time. And, and so we need to get back to that and reconnect with that practice. To learn more about conservation here in Minnesota, you can check out the podcast Prairie Pod. It's produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources and covers the complexity and beauty of Minnesota's prairies. Farron has also been a guest on the show talking about Indigenous people's long role in prairie stewardship. You can find the link in our episode description. Now, back to our episode. Yeah, you know, I think it's... it's interesting when you talk about traditional ecological now knowledge mm-hmm. and i think there's a lot of that out there that mm-hmm. maybe has been lost but you know through practices like yours um you're able to incorporate some of this traditional knowledge with um you know regular western practices mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about you know for you as an indigenous person you know how important it is to to keep that knowledge and make sure it's being used and passed on and um, used in a good way with more modern technology. Yeah, for sure. I feel like um, now people are really coming to us because they understand that our knowledge and our worldviews are, are valid. Right. And, and we have Western science to back that knowledge up now too. And so um, it is really important to be able to have different perspectives on how to manage things and, how to even view some of these um, landscapes. So for me, it's really important to view plants and animals as our relatives. And so I think that's a really different concept from, you know, Western society where if somebody looked at a tree, they might not necessarily think like, oh, well, that's my relative. But when we view plants and animals as relatives, it's much easier to care for them and, and ensure that, you know, their future or we have them for future generations. And so just being able to go to the community too, even here, like it's so, I think it's a gift when a community member comes to me and they say like, Hey, Farron, I want to see, you know, more wild rose. Can you plant that? Because I want to use the rose hips to make tea. So that's to me, ecological knowledge within the community. 
And so that's something that I try to incorporate into our work or get feedback from the community because there's a lot of knowledge out there and not all of it has been lost. A lot of it has, but fortunately we've been able to retain some of it and to be able to put that into our practices has been, again, it makes your work really meaningful. You know, as um, we think about, you know, fire, especially and and climate change, you know, we've seen here in Minnesota, you know, the the devastation that wildfires have uh, Mm -hmm. north in Canada and northern Minnesota, you know, even here bringing in the smoke and um, the devastation out in California. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, had tribes um, continued to practice you know, some of these uh, traditional ways when it comes to managing or being stewards of of their natural environment, um, could some of these things maybe have been avoided or not as bad as they've been? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I feel like a lot of people don't realize like those practices were criminalized in the early 1900s. So it would have been illegal for somebody from, you know, our communities to go out and they understood like we need fire. But, um, but yeah, those, they could have gone to jail. They could have lost their livelihoods, their families, you know, depended on, on people within their communities to provide. And so that was something that was taken away from us. And we, and we see that the effects of that today with all the, the, we call it fuel accumulation. So basically what that means is if there's no fire in those spaces, a lot of the fuels or the dead and down things in that forest just kind of stay there. And so it makes the fires a lot more intense. But if we would have kept up burning how our ancestors would have been burning, that would have taken care of that. Right. So a lot of those, the fuel accumulation wouldn't have happened. And so now we're playing catch up. And so, and, and it's funny because a lot of the governmental agencies are coming to us as tribes now and saying like, okay, how can you help us, you know, um, boost up our capacity to, to perform fires. And, um, and it's just like, <laughs> it's, it's coming full circle again. It's like, okay, you're coming back to our communities and asking for help, which is great. Um, but everybody, you know, kind of needs to get on board with, okay, fire is something that needs to happen. How are we going to do it? It's ironic that (laughs) indigenous people have all this knowledge and so much of it has been suppressed by outsiders Mm -hmm. and unable to exercise it. And then, you Mm -hmm. know, finally they get, get the fact that, oh, maybe they're onto something. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, speaking of indigenous knowledge, so when we talk a little bit about climate change and, you know, we look at the fires and melting ice caps and, and all those things, I know. You know, a lot of times indigenous communities are most impacted mm-hmm. by some of the issues around climate change, but they're also at the forefront of oh, yeah. doing what needs to be done to uh, do our part to address climate change. And here at SMSC, um, we're trying to do our part. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things um, maybe SMSC or tribes uh, uh, are doing to address climate change in their communities? I feel like here at the SMSC, we're doing um, something that is often overlooked, and that's, you know, just restoring natural landscapes. They're called natural solutions in in kind of that climate change realm. But I feel like that's often overlooked, and we don't um, think about how powerful it is just to even, like, maintain or restore different ecosystems that have such um, a high capacity to store carbon. 
So prairies, they store so much carbon in their root systems. And here over the past 20 years, you know, we've restored 1000 acres of prairie. So that's a lot like within the community. And um, yeah, they could even be a more, you know, resilient and resistant carbon sink than forests because again, all that carbon is stored in their root system. So forests, um, a lot of the carbon is stored in the upper canopy or the canopy of the tree. So like when, if a wildfire went through that carbon is released back into the atmosphere. So I feel like doing our part to restore prairies is even, you know, an excellent solution. And a lot of tribes are, you know, restoring, um, their landscapes are bringing things back that have been lost. And, um, and that's a really great solution for climate change too. I did not know that that prairie stored that much carbon. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) Learning something new. Thank you for that. Well, in addition to all the environmental science work you do here at SMSC, you are the co-author of a book that will be published this spring, um, Wildfire, The Culture, Science, and Future of Fire. Mm -hmm. Um, Congratulations on that, first (laughs) of all. And can you tell us a little bit uh, about the book? Yeah, so I had a lot of help with the book. Um, I'm a co-author with uh, Stephanie McPherson, and she's an excellent uh, scientific author. And together we examine um, the history of fire in the United States. And so how land managers, land management agencies, how indigenous people have used fire historically. And then we looked at um, how climate change is impacting fires currently and where fires could be going towards in the future. And so for me, a part of the book that I really wanted to focus on was how our ancestors, our indigenous people had that relationship with fire, because I feel like that's a story that's often untold. And, um, and I wanted people to understand, like we value fire and we had a relationship. And so um, we just need to get back to that. And I wanted that story to be told, but it's also a story about like how we got to where we are in the United States with fire and maybe where we can go in the future. So is the book, um, is it like in a story format? Is it more in an academic format? Like who is, who's the audience? So the target audience is um, middle school and high school age students, which I feel like that's so important to be able to introduce um, that knowledge to students at that age, because I, I didn't have any knowledge about wildfires when I was in middle school or high school. I didn't understand like, you know, that our, even our ancestors had a big part in, um, intending the land with fire. And so I thought it was really important to maybe go with that age demographic because then they'll have an understanding as adults, like, okay, fire is important. We need it on our landscape. And how can I help support that even in my own community? And um, so it's really for that target audience, but I feel like anybody can read it, you know, maybe um, an adult would glean some information from it, too. Well, I can't wait to read it <laughs> um, personally. So um, so when you came up with this idea, like how did it go from idea to finding a, a co-author, a publisher? Like, can you talk a little bit about the process? Yeah. So I was really fortunate that um, I think somebody had known that. I was um, had a lot of knowledge about fire. And and so I think that was something, again, that the publisher was interested in the indigenous perspective of a fire and how our ancestors used fire. So it kind of fell into my lap. really, (laughs) And it was a project that kind of just got brought to me and and was they asked if I'd be interested in 
being an author and I was like, well, I've never authored anything before. So it's, it was really intimidating. And they were like, well, we can bring in a co-author to help that has a lot of experience writing in the scientific realm. So I was like, okay, I feel better about it. And so that's kind of how it, it got brought along. Otherwise, I don't know if I'd have been able to take it on just by myself. <laughs> well, that's pretty amazing um, to, yeah, go from an environmental scientist to, to now an author. So did you enjoy the process? Yeah, I feel yeah. like I still struggle to call myself an author. It doesn't feel real. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a it was a fun process to research and look at, you know, different ways that not only my ancestors, but people even throughout the United States had used fire and to understand the history of fire and, you know, Smokey the Bear and that campaign to um, help stop wildfires, which kind of led to a lot of confusion um, in the United States. And a lot of people think that, you know, all fire is bad because of that. But in reality, we have a lot of good fire in this book's helping to promote that message too. Cool. Um, I said, I can't wait to read it. So when it's published, is it something that um, you're going to work with schools to get into their um, like science programs or what, what's the hope there? Hopefully, yeah, there's yeah. something, hopefully there can be some type of curriculum developed with, with the book and it can be used by teachers to, you know, introduce um, students to that information and introduce also that traditional ecological knowledge to students. Because I feel like, again, sometimes us as indigenous people don't, they don't view us as scientific or as scientists, but our, I mean, our ancestors were scientists. They learned through years and, you know, millennia of observation. So I feel like this is a good introduction to that to say like, you know, we knew what we were doing and we were stewards of the land. and um, this is something that I think a lot of, you know, students need to learn about. Are there a lot of other indigenous um, kind of scientific books out there that share some of this indigenous knowledge? Not that I'm aware of there. I, oh man, maybe this will open the doors and <laughs> a lot of other people will start um, introducing this topic about indigenous knowledge. But I feel like um, I, I don't know of any specifically i know that there's like documents out there that have examples of how we have been scientific in, in you know the natural world but not like just targeting this group or this audience either so you're a trailblazer i don't know bunch of, <laughs> in a whole bunch of different forms um, that's amazing um you know i there's so many things we could talk about mm -hmm. i wish we had hours and hours but um you know Land management or stewardship of our land and natural resources is something that's really becoming more of a focus in society mm -hmm. um, because of, you know, the the issues we're seeing around climate change. Where mm -hmm. do you see kind of this profession going in the future? So I'm already kind of seeing it now happening, but it's we're as indigenous scientists, as indigenous communities, tribes, we're being um asked to be at the table with these conversations around converse around um, conservation. And so I just want to continue to see more of that and not only just being invited for them to listen because, you know, our knowledge is a gift too. And I think that sometimes people don't understand that. And so I want to be able to be leaders in the conversations, right. And to be able to, um, build relationships with outside organizations and, and just have our worldview and our perspectives in the um, conservation realm. And so 
I think it's going to continue to grow and, and I'm seeing it even more and more because I know because I get so many requests to like talk to people about different things and incorporate our worldviews into their management too. So I'm really hopeful that it just continues to grow. Um, you know, as working for a, a tribe, is there a lot of shared practices that kind of go on um, conversations that um, you're you're spreading best practices and working together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I feel like there's a lot of um, cross work that we do with a lot of different organizations. Like we have a lot of the same goals and we might not talk about them in the same, you know, with the same terminology, but ultimately you know, we want to protect, conserve, restore all of these spaces and all of these plants and animals. And so the only thing that sometimes differs is how we view those plants and animals. And again, like we like to view them as relatives, because, again, I think it's really important to um, think of them in that way, because it's it's so much more easy to under like I want to take care of that thing now because I view it and I value it so deeply. And so, again, like a I think that's maybe the only thing that we differ, but a lot of this, we share a lot of the same, you know, goals. And I think that um, once we start talking and building relationships, that's really evident and it's been good to work with other people and bring in other expertise. And so we've been able to do a lot of really cool projects here in the last couple of years. And that's been, that's been great. I think it's wonderful to hear you talk about that worldview and how, you know, everything's a relative in Mm -hmm. the indigenous worldview and, um, you know, I, I wish we could all mm-hmm. see everything as a relative. Um, the world might be a much better place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you do a lot to care for the earth um, on the daily in, in your job. So if you could um, give our listeners any advice, um, what are you know some basic things they can do to care for the earth in their everyday life? I feel like one of the ways you can help the earth is is just foster your relationship with, you know, different plants and animals. Like I said, just switching your worldview to viewing those things as relatives. And for me, I really like understanding the gifts that they give us. And so like for a plant, like, okay, what are, you know, these different uses? And I, I don't like to say uses. I like to say gifts because again, that's a gift from that, from that thing. And so uh, to you know foster that I think is really important and um even just getting outdoors <laughs> like just going outside for a walk everybody feels better after a walk right <laughs> for sure yeah so yeah. just going outside and valuing those those spaces that um are often overlooked I think is is really important in recognizing that they have value intrinsic value and you know they don't always have to be monopolized it's just we can go outside and enjoy it and it's it's beautiful no, I couldn't agree more. Just being in nature is good for the soul, right? Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. nothing better than jumping in a cold lake or <laughs> yeah. getting your hands in the dirt, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Baron, thank you so much for being here today and sharing about your experience mm-hmm. and your upcoming book. Uh, I wish you all the best um, oh, as you. that rolls out in the spring, and mm-hmm. I'm very excited for you. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been great. Thank you for joining me for the Native Minnesota podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also visit our website, understandnativemn.org, to learn more about our campaign's work to improve the Native narrative in Minnesota's public schools.